from 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, RAs want hazard pay, what students want for their COVID-combating efforts. The Black Oranges, what former SU athletes are doing to combat racial injustice, and the costs of COVID, what no fans mean for Syracuse businesses. It's Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. So about two weeks into the semester, a bunch of RAs started emailing each other and passing around this Google Doc from the sources that I spoke with. It started with an RA somewhere on the Mount, either Flint or Day Hall, and a group of maybe like 10 or 12 RAs had gotten together and they said, look, we realize that we're doing way more work this semester. If you agree, please join us in signing these demands that we're going to send to Office of Student Living. And there was just like a Google Doc of demands that had been typed up and they just constantly revised them. All RAs were invited to edit or add whatever they wanted to and whatever they thought was going to be good to send to OSL and they started with maybe 20 or so and then they wound up shortening them down to nine. There were meetings and Zoom calls throughout the semester and finally just last week they sent the email to OSL. I'm Sarah Alessandrini and I'm an assistant news editor at the Daily Orange. For our listeners who don't know, what is OSL and why would the RAs go there for their demands? OSL is the Office of Student Living, so they kind of oversee the RAs, they oversee the dorms, they are pretty much in charge of everything related to residential living on campus. What do these demands include? They include hazard pay for the resident advisors, more open communication and clarification on what the RAs' roles are in this with the whole pandemic. A lot of RAs had told me that over the summer they really weren't made clear exactly what their responsibilities were going to be in terms of COVID and just keeping the residents in line. They want more clarity on what the second semester is going to look like, what the move out process is going to look like. So those are just some of the bigger demands that are included in the nine. And from what I've heard from the resident advisors that I spoke with, those are kind of the two most important to them. Now, one of the RAs you talked to was in Booth Hall and they remained anonymous. How did they hear about the list of demands? So they heard about the demands through RAs in Marion and Kimmel Halls. They said there's about 15 RAs between those three halls that have gotten involved. And they kind of spoke amongst each other and they decided that they wanted to get involved because actually the Booth Hall RA, it's their second year as an RA. So they definitely noticed that they're doing a lot more work. So it was really important to them to get involved and they were able to kind of get involved through those other RAs that they had heard about it from. And you mentioned earlier what some of the demands were. Can you elaborate more on what the focus of these demands are and what they suggest? So the point of these demands are just to focus on the health and safety of the resident advisors because in the past three weeks, sorry, four weeks since the semester began, The RAs don't really feel like their health and safety has been prioritized. They don't really feel like the university has been paying too much attention to them. They've just been kind of going along with whatever has been thrown at them in the past four weeks. They don't really have a lot of open communication. So it's not as much that they want more pay. They want 
they want more money. It's really that they just want to feel like they're being heard and that their concerns are being addressed. And that's really important to the Aries I spoke with, that they see their demands as perfectly reasonable. They're just things that really should have been included in their contracts over the summer. It's things that they should have already had it worked out before they started their position. So it's just really important to them that OSL takes these demands seriously and doesn't see it as they're just being greedy. They just want more money. And so has OSL done anything about these demands? So the Dean of Students, Marianne Thompson, did respond to us, the Daily Orange, in a statement. And she said that they are working on addressing some of the demands. So they are working with RAs currently just to address some of the demands that they've sent in. There hasn't been much of an update on what that entails. We haven't really heard from RAs much as to whether or not OSL actually is keeping up with this end of the bargain. But currently there's discussions taking place now, according to Dean of Students. How are RAs essential to upholding student safety, specifically the Stay Safe Pledge, during this semester? Well, RAs are absolutely responsible for upholding and enforcing the Stay Safe Pledge on their floors and their dorms. They're the ones that are going up to students and telling them, you know, put your masks on. They're the ones facing maybe a little bit of back talk from students who don't want to do that. And overall, a lot of RAs have just talked to me and said that they feel like the public and even like parents have placed increased expectations on the RAs. They really expect them to just kind of be babysitters for their kids. When there's a large gathering, they're like, where's the RAs? And that's another one of the demands that they had included, that they want DPS and university to be able to enforce this a little more and help them out because students don't always listen to the RAs. A lot of RAs that I've spoken to, that's another reason that these demands are so important to them because they're essential for enforcing these the Stay Safe Pledge and for making sure students are doing what they're told on the dorms. And they're the ones really stopping the spread. If not for the RAs, then who knows what students would be doing and if students would actually be listening to the Stay Safe Pledge on their own. And so are there other RAs asking for similar demands outside of Syracuse's campus? Is this happening at any other university or college? There are other universities where RAs have gone on strike and RAs have submitted very similar demands to their Office of Student Livings and their universities, and they're demanding very similar things such as hazard pay and such as just more open communication. And they've taken more increased measures than RRAs have. They've gone as far as striking to assure that their demands are being heard. And finally, Sarah, when do the Syracuse RAs expect a response? And what if there is no response? The RAs had said in their demands that they submitted that they expect a response within a week. If there is no response, then they will be taking alternative measures. That is a direct quote from the written demands. It's unclear still what those measures are. The RAs that I've spoken with, none of them are in like the higher up leadership and none of them really, from what I've spoken to, they all said they haven't really worked out yet what those measures are going to be. But they do expect a response within a week and they're just really hoping that OSL is going to take their response seriously. Sarah Ellisandrini is an assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. You can read her story, Resident Advisors Wish SU Provided Them More Support, Communication, on the Daily Orange website. Sarah, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. In the immediate aftermath of the George Floyd murder, Brian Tarrant had started texting, Facebook messaging some of his old football teammates, and he also got some messages from them asking what they can do, what they should do, because of the repeated 
occurrences of, of black men getting killed by police. My name is Andrew Crane, and I'm the sports editor at the Daily Orange. When and how did the Black Oranges start? Brian started thinking about what he could do. He started kind of gauging interest of perhaps like forming some sort of group, the Syracuse Athletics Connection. And so that's really how Black Oranges came about. Tell us more about Brian Tarrant. You mentioned him earlier. What did he do? While he's not like the founder, he's a co-founder who has really kind of taken large steps to progress the group. You know, he's the one who released the initial press statement, kind of announcing the founding of Black Oranges. He's the one who helped set up the interviews for me when I reached out, wanted to write the story. Brian's helping shape its image for the community to see. What did the organization do when it started and what are they doing now? So the way Black Oranges launched itself into the community was through a hashtag get off the bench social media campaign, which more or less was a 4th of July push on every social media where there are these posts about, you know, what people could do to end racism or steps they could do to maybe understand, you know, the perspective of what you know, black people are going through from a historical context. So it's not necessarily about like, a protest. This is more about like an action plan. They have a 53 item list on their website from books to read, movies to watch, places to donate. There are so many different ways that they've kind of promoted. And their goal for the 4th of July was to have people take a picture of them doing one of those items. So that was the get off the bench social media campaign that like introduced them to the Syracuse community. There's about there, there's three groups of former Syracuse athletes who all kind of formed at the same time. They've received the most attention just because of the steps they've taken since. They've had conversations with Not Again SU. They're looking to have a conversation with DPS, like, you know, just trying to figure out what led to the bias incidents and hate crimes on Syracuse's campus last year. They've learned about that. You know, they've learned about the context of the campus climate itself and how they can help fix that for not only current athletes, but also students. And what happened after the get off the bench challenge? Black Oranges grew exponentially. They expanded from about 20 members involved in, in the group. Now there's 360 approximately on their email lists. Their, their message is really getting across to the people they're trying to reach, which is not only SU athletes, but also just current students. Brian was saying 300 of those are former student athletes and the other 60 are a blend of regular students and what we're calling allies, people that may not have graduated from Syracuse but they, they want to help out in some type of way. What did Terrence say he wanted get off the bench to amount to? The way he described it was that... I mean, all through Facebook, I mean, my entire feed was filled with just everybody posting pictures, same thing with my LinkedIn. I felt like, you know, for some newbies, this was, was definitely a success, and we grew our numbers. I think from that event, we probably gained about 120 people. I had talked with Brian first in July, about 20 hours before the launch of get off the bench and i talked with him about a week ago and just kind of asked him like have you reflected on how far you've come in these you know in these first few months and the way he described it was like yes it's it's incredible you know the amount of people that have joined in the amount of people who agree with our vision people who are willing to support us and and our journey you know toward trying to end not only systemic racism on a large scale but also just better in the environment at syracuse university and across su athletics you mentioned earlier that Black Oranges met with student activists, and specifically the group Not Again SU. When they met with them, what did they discuss? Conversation was focused around bias 
incidents and hate crimes on campus last year, which caused not again SU to form and to protest in the fall. And in the first place, in the spring, there was the incident involving DPS when they weren't allowing food and other materials into to Krauss Hans Hall. Controversy between just kind of how DPS handled it and kind of the disconnect between not again SU and DPS. And so Black Oranges was basically just looking to understand. And the way Brian phrased it to me was that we had a town hall where we brought in members of the football team and then members of not again SU. And we gave them a platform to share some of the things that happened last year. And what are their feelings like? You know, how do they feel being on campus? They shared a lot of things that unfortunately our members, we just weren't aware of. It was kind of gut wrenching. Shared a letter from DPS that was sent to Chancellor. And just the language that was used in there just shows that the culture that I see there is that people feel emboldened to be able to do and say racist things. And now they're kind of looking to understand it from DPS's perspective. And then once they're kind of able to get the full story behind it, that's when they can really regroup, maybe have another meeting among like the collective, and then figure out what some of the next steps they want to take related to, to Syracuse University students are. Also in your article, you mentioned Monica Belk. Who is she and what did she have to say about the campaign? Monica is another one of those co-founders with Brian. She is a director at ESPN and the SEC Network. And so she's done a lot of the PR stuff. She's helped push everything out on social media. She helps kind of coordinate the Zoom meetings. So she's really in the, the same boat that everybody else is kind of hoping that Black Oranges is what creates change, not only in the SU athletics community, not only in the Syracuse community, but also in the local communities and national country as a whole. And so that was really her main takeaway when I talk with her is like, you know, we have Black Oranges listed out these 53 possible steps that people can take. If if people who come across that website do one, if they do two, like they don't have to do all 53, all they need is, you know, one or two, and that can really, you know, make a difference right away. Um, and so that's it's not about trying to be the one person who does everything they like does like all 50 of those things it's you know maybe you do a couple and you pass along the message and somebody else does a couple and all of a sudden you know 25 people doing a couple ends up being you know 50 50 action steps toward uh ending systemic racism and and you know making change across social justice what are the ultimate goals for the black oranges the way David Walker, a former Syracuse running back, raised it to me is like the ultimate goals are, you know, to highlight voting rights and to also even lead to police reform. The September 21st voting webinar is the first step toward highlighting the importance of what a vote means and encouraging people to vote. And they're kind of setting aside a block of time to really dive into the importance of what their vote means, both locally and nationally. Police reform and you know, kind of voting rights are, yes, the big ones and the important ones, but there are also kind of these micro issues that Brian and Black Oranges want to solve within Syracuse. Brian told me a story about when... I remember, you know, years ago, I reached out to the football program and former coaches, and I had a couple job openings for people, and I couldn't get one guy, I couldn't get one resume. And then I reached out to a couple of the coaches on the Olympic side, and again, I didn't get one resume. The starting salary was probably you know fifteen percent, twenty percent more than than other industries. Like man, I'm trying to bring a kid in and give a kid opportunity like I had, and I couldn't get a coach to to give me a name. 
that's one of the things he wants to work on too is just getting athletes you know in a position where they can jump into these jobs and these opportunities right out of school that's like one avenue where he's kind of looking to expand down andrew crane is the sports editor for the daily orange you can read his story black oranges led by former athletes becomes a blueprint for social change on the daily orange website andrew thank you so much for your time thanks mariah The crowd was sort of coming to varsity about two hours before the game. The pizza line would be really busy and Eric described for me how it would curl around the restaurant and then after it sort of filled all that standing room inside then they would start another line outside the door just to get into the place. I was asking him would you see the same people every week and you know he wasn't even sure because there were so many people in there for game day that he didn't even know. So there would be like so many people in there that people would just be standing, obviously like no tables, putting their pizza down on windowsills, on top of the trash can, um, things like that, because it was just so crowded. Most of the people who came to Varsity Pizza like before the game would sort of leave um, during the game, so they would go up to the dome. Eric was kind of talking about how away games are kind of like normal days because maybe some people will come in to watch, but it's not too many people. The idea is just that like every game is going to be like an away game basically it's just gonna be like a normal lunch and so people come in but there's no like rush of of people um because there's really no reason to come up to the to the university area if you're not going to go watch the game they're like exploring other options with delivery and things like that i'm roshan fernandez and i'm an assistant sports editor at the daily orange and so what is a game day going to look like for some of the other store owners on marshall street that you talk to for other Marshall Street owners, there's just going to be like a lot less revenue coming in. There's two merchandise stores on Marshall Street, um, Shirt World and then Manny's. And both of those places are very reliant on, on game day for a lot of their business. And those owners also told me the same thing where it's like wall to wall people. There's so many people where they don't recognize who's a regular and who isn't. But a lot of people will come in to buy merchandise like to wear to the game without really having a place to display that merchandise it's more challenging. There's just less revenue and it's just tougher. What did the owner of Acropolis tell you about how he will manage these losses? He said that he's also been doing this more than 40 years. And so he said that when he grew up, his dad kind of taught him that for every $3 you make, you save $2. His dad lived through the Greek Civil War. So he said that as long as we have food to put on the table for my family, and everyone's healthy, it's going to be okay. Like this year, maybe we have to wait six months, maybe we have to wait a year, but it'll be okay, and things will go back to normal eventually. Tell me about the co-owner of Fagan's Pub and Cafe and his thoughts about the season. John Dulles is the co-owner of Varsity and Fagan's. He owns it with his cousin. He opened it in 1977, and then because he's been doing this for such a long time, it's just gotten really old for him and he doesn't he doesn't enjoy it anymore it's partially because obviously he's been doing it a long time but also just the pandemic is making it no fun and he kind of said that this pandemic is like the icing on the cake for him and maybe it's like time for him to step away sometime soon just because he's faced a lot of different challenges with the limited number of people that can come into his store with no fans in the dome and things like that so we've talked about how this season is going to impact stores on marshall street is the season going to impact any restaurants downtown? I talked to Jason Ryan, who's the marketing director at Dinosaur Barbecue, and he's also an SU professor. 
but he talked about how Dinosaur Barbecue has like this sort of plan to reach those customers who would have previously come into the store for game day because pretty much all of these people talked about how it's it's a game day tradition to go to you know varsity pizza to go to fagan's to go to dinosaur barbecue and so they want to recreate that tradition in the best way that they can except that probably means bringing that tradition to people's homes so with dinosaur barbecue they were talking about their tailgate package which is just a sort of Thing you can order for delivery or pickup with like wings, their barbecue sauce, or whatever other game day items you're interested in buying. And they just want to reach those same customers who would have normally come in who maybe don't feel as comfortable coming in anymore. Because all these places have like some seating, but the other concern is just that people aren't going to make the trip up to the university area to the dome if there's no fans. What did Varsity Pizza actually look like for the kickoff of the season on Saturday? Yeah, so I went into Varsity on Saturday, and that was an away game, so that's a normal day for them typically. But when I went in, Eric had kind of told me that they were working on getting AC Network still, and he wasn't sure if they were going to have it in time for the North Carolina game. And so when I went in, they had their big screen down, but there was only like 10 or so people in the store. There was SpongeBob playing on the big screen. So I kind of found that a little bit a little bit funny, but that was also very telling of sort of just the idea that, you know, it's just going to be like a normal lunch. Roshan Fernandez is an assistant sports editor for The Daily Orange. You can read his article, Without Fans in the Dome, Local Restaurants, Businesses Adapt on Game Days on The Daily Orange website. Roshan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. A special thank you to our reporters, Sarah, Andrew, and Roshan. Thanks executive producer and podcast editor, Elizabeth Kama, and to our producers, Catherine Ito, Adam Garrity, and Kylie Herlilly. And as always, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and go ahead and tell your friends to do the same. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>